Hey everybody, happy new year and welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Bikes and Big Ideas is presented by CBG Trails. The CBG Trails app is the only complete trail map app of Crested Butte and the Gunnison Valley, Colorado. So download the app today and start exploring. So today, our topic is the future. And namely, we're going to be discussing what the mountain bike industry is going to look like 10 years from now. We're going to go into what current gear categories have the most room for improvement and where will the actual advances in bike tech have happened by the end of 2029. We'll talk about which categories of riding will have grown and which will have shrunk. Will we have fewer or more bike parks? I discuss all of this and more with Noah Bodman and David Golay, including their wildest predictions for this next decade. And we'd love to hear what you predict the bike industry is going to look like in 10 years. So let us know in the comments section of the show notes to this episode on the Blister website. And with that, here we go. All right. Well, Noah and David, we are back. And I think before we get into the prediction stuff, I want to just take a second and maybe let's look back to our last episode where we were doling out these kind of awards for the most influential gear and or best gear of the past 10 years. David, did anything kind of come up for you as significant either from some of the comments that our listeners had to that episode or anything you've thought of on your own? Anything jump out? Yeah, um, and a couple things. So first one is that I just had I misspoke in there, and at one point said the uh, Fox DHX2 was my call when I meant to say the Fox X Float X2. That was a uh, slip of the tongue on my part. Someone in the comments caught me on that one, so uh, issuing a correction on that point. And then other stuff from the comments. A bunch of people called out a variety of bikes that are interesting and noteworthy. There are a ton of bikes that you could very strongly make a good case for being quite influential and important. But the one comment that I thought was really nailed something most strongly was uh, DM Sakamoto calling out Stan's tire sealant as one of the most influential products of the 2000s. I think is a great call, kind of along the lines of what Noah and I were thinking of with the Mini and DHF. That's a product that has been around for going on 20 years now and is still being used by a ton of people and is still super important and largely unchanged over that huge time span. And uh, going to sealant really made a huge difference in making tubeless work. Prior to that, there was basically UST that was trying to do tubeless without sealant, and it frankly kind of sucked. And stands really moved the needle on making tubeless tires work. So that is undeniably huge. Well, good. Well, proper shout out to Stans and, uh, you know, thanks for everything, Stans. Okay, well, then let's go ahead and get to kind of the predictions and trends for this coming decade. Noah, we're going to start with you um, and we're going to kind of go from bottom of the podium up to the number one spot. So why don't you start with your third place finisher for gear predictions for 2020 through the end of 2029 yeah so in third place what i think is going to happen is industry-wide across uh, a lot of the different bike brands we're going to see a lot more places where you can stash your weed inside your bike um (laughs) (laughs) uh but uh, uh seriously though like uh specialized swap box is is sweet uh, you can cram a bunch of stuff in there aside from just your weed, like, you know, a tube and, and maybe some food. I don't know if they have that patented or how broad that patent might be, but I would imagine that some other brands have got to start cutting some holes into their down tube so you can cram stuff in there. And, you know, we're already seeing a whole bunch of the tool makers coming out with little 
things where you can cram your tool into your handlebar or your bottom bracket or some other weird place on your bike. And, and I think that that kind of integration will probably get a lot better over the next, uh, probably the next couple of years. So I don't think we even have to wait a whole decade for that. And yeah, obviously if you do need to carry weed, then I, I, I think you're going to have so many options. All right, then. Uh, top that, David. Yeah, I think Noah's probably right that that is something that's going to happen. Uh, it didn't exactly make my list of sort of most notable and important changes in the industry. And uh, in number three on my list, I had just more electronic shit. So both actual e-bikes, but also more electronic stuff of, frankly, in my opinion, somewhat dubious value stuff like more widespread electronic shifting. And we're seeing a few things like electronic actuated dropper posts and so on that I am in no way convinced anybody needs. I think we're going to see more of that and stuff like uh, maybe dropper posts and climb switches on rear shocks that are both actuated electronically and tied together. So you have one button to do both of them and arrange a goofy stuff like that. I think that's coming. Okay, so third place for you, more goofy electronics stuff. Noah, what's in second place for you? So second place, I, I, I have uh, scribbled down some ramblings about e-bikes. Um, so I, I guess it's it, I'm also talking about electronic stuff. And I think David's right that we're going to see way more electronic widgets strapped to our bikes. And I'm also with David that I think the benefits of that are, are kind of dubious having to charge my bike isn't something that I'm excited about. But uh, yeah, I think e-bikes are, are going to become more common in North America. They're already pretty common in Europe. But I also don't think that we're going to see like the industry-wide e-bike takeover that some people are predicting. I really think that the popularity of e-bikes is kind of going to, it's going to build, then it's going to taper back a bit. And then it's going to settle into being this sort of semi-niche market that a relatively small population of people is really excited about, which pretty much means that I think e-bikes of the 2020s are the fat bikes of the 2010s in that they're like, everybody thinks they're like the greatest new thing. And, and then eventually people realize that they're not actually that excited about them. And there becomes just a core group that is still super into them, which isn't meant to be a comment on whether they're a good thing or a bad thing. I just don't think that they're going to be the new takeover. Everybody's riding e-bikes by 2026 or something like that. I mean, so in other words, like, if I think there's 100% agreement that dropper posts came along and I'm not sure that anybody in the world is like, yeah, those really messed up mountain biking. You're saying that like, we're not moving with e-bikes to a kind of anything, anything like a 100% adoption rate. And it sounds like you're saying well below 50%. Yeah. I, I would say well below 50%. Uh, I don't think it would be fair to characterize it as a fad, but I, yeah, I, I think it's, it's a, a niche portion of the market and, and some people will be very excited about them. Uh, there will be an avid e-bike user base. Uh, and, you know, there's probably going to be regulations. And, uh, there's e-bikes for this whole messy gray area right now in terms of trail access. And, and I would imagine that that will largely sort itself out. Um, and that's going to make it easier to own an e-bike when you can hopefully ride them more places. But, uh, yeah, I think that's all that's all reasonably foreseeable. But. I also just don't think that e-bikes are going to turn into this massive population of users that I, I would bet that a lot of the bike companies hope <laughs> would, would exist. Yeah, I pretty much agree with Noah on that one. I think that e-bikes are going to grow in the U.S. a bit, but they have a very definite ceiling. 
as far as their appeal goes, and they're not going to just completely take over in the way that some people are predicting that they might. My take on this is I definitely don't think it's a fad in the sense we'll be like at the end of 2029, like remember when there were those e-bikes? Like I definitely don't think this is going away. I definitely think there is market and room for a segment. I think I am in agreement that within 10 years, I don't see sort of most mountain bikers owning say just an e-bike or they've got if they own two bikes one of those two is almost always an e-bike but here's a question for you guys at the end of 2029 will we see a lot more smaller and kind of indie manufacturers will it be standard for pretty much every significant bike company to have at least one e-bike in their lineup or a handful? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I would say definitely, because they kind of already do. Almost every major bike company has an e-bike. And if they don't right now, I think it's it's more of a conscious decision to not have one than uh, they haven't, you know, the, the, it's not like they haven't developed the tech yet. Uh, you know, the, the e-bike motors these days for better or for worse, you know, you can, you can build a frame around them pretty easy. They bolt right on to frame, you know, some are more integrated than others for sure. But, but if you want to build an e-bike, it's not that difficult these days. So just to be clear, Noah, you're saying yes, pretty much like most manufacturers in 10 years will be offering an option and you're saying, and perhaps more options than present. So while you just said you don't see this as taking over and becoming a dominant offering, you do expect manufacturers to all offer them and maybe offer more as opposed to like pulling back. Most of the bike brands these days offer a downhill bike. They don't sell a lot of them. I mean, downhill bikes are a pretty small segment of the sport, but most of the bike manufacturers still make them. I think e-bikes will be similar. I and mean, they'll probably sell more e-bikes than downhill bikes. I think brands that do not sell e-bikes are only not selling them as a conscious choice because they want to be a human-powered company. We'll probably get some comments about that. Yeah. Well, like Transition specifically lists out not an e-bike as a feature of every single bike on their website right now, or they did last time I looked at it. So they, for example, are taking kind of a very anti-e-bike approach. And exactly. And I, and I think that's not because Transition does not have the engineering capability or kind of the, the, the ability to go out and make an e-bike and put it on the market. You know, they could have an e-bike in their stable next year, I'm sure, if they wanted to. Yep. Agreed. Uh, but they don't want to. Okay, David, let's get to your second spot prediction. So my second pick is something that I'm far more excited about than the electronic gizmos. And that is that I think we're going to see more kind of burly and aggressive geometry on short travel bikes. The bike industry has gotten to the point where more aggressive geometry has become more mainstream. In the like, We talked about this a fair bit in the trends of the last decade episode where up to this point it's kind of been the small indie brands or some of them at least that were doing the most to push bike geometry towards the longer lower slacker deal and the bigger brands are catching up now and i think that along with that they'll start doing more to make that sort of geometry but with more kind of 120 130 sort of travel bikes and even some hardtails and so on which is a trend that's starting now but i think that's really going to continue as people realize that once you make the geometry pretty aggressive you can come up with a pretty cool blend where the bike has got some nimble poppiness out of it from not having a huge amount of suspension travel but it's still also super capable with the modern geometry and uh there's a good blend to be had there and i think we'll see a lot more of that in the coming decade 
thoughts on that, Noah, or should we move on to number one? Well, I think this is bullshit because David's number two is my number one. And so now I don't really have anything to talk about. And so he's just making me look like an asshole. To be fair, you did that to me a bunch in the last one. So, yeah. Not so much an asshole, Noah, just kind of dumb and, you know, lacking of imagination and creativity. So those are different. If we've gone in reverse order, then I would look very imaginative and creative. And David would be looking like he should have put his geometry thing in the first spot. Okay. Well, anyway, despite the fact that we've outed you as someone who lacks creativity and imagination, Noah... Do you have anything to add as a cha- as a perhaps a way to salvage this lack of creativity and imagination that you've been outed for? Well, I do think, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think geometry settles out is is more what I had written down. I think across the board, I kind of see bikes settling into something akin to kind of the progressive end of current bikes. You know, I don't think you can get a whole lot longer on reach. I don't think you can get a whole lot steeper on C-tube angles. You can maybe go a little slacker on head tube angles, but but I'm skeptical. You know, there's you get back into the fork offset discussion and, you know, maybe linkage forks have uh a a role in all of that although i'm i'm skeptical <laughs> i think chain stays maybe get a little longer uh over there there's a split on the progressive end of bikes right now on the short chain stay versus long trade stay and i i think they trend a little longer but uh yeah for the most part you know you look at the the gorilla gravities and the poles and the geometrons and some of those pretty aggressive bikes that are out there these days and i think we see more of the mainstream industry shifting towards those geometries and maybe not quite all the way there but then i I think we kind of settle out on on that kind of geometry we've seen huge shifts in geometry over the last five years or so but i think that shift is slowing down and I don't see any huge changes in those kind of numbers over the next 10 years. Of course, that might just be because of your lack of creativity and imagination. So everybody has to kind of take what you've just said worth a grain of salt. I mean, I am an unimaginative person. Um, I mean, I can imagine, you know, maybe there's some sort of like biological play that causes humans to all get a lot taller. And then I would say geometry will probably change. You know, if we stick around, you know, average height of five foot ten or whatever, then, uh, you know, until that plague happens and everybody has a growth spurt, I think we stick with the progressive end of current geometry. Well, I think you're you're back. You've, You've, yeah, this really boosted your creativity. I also like the idea that in your world, it is plagues that lead to height <laughs> increases. I'm not sure we've ever historically seen that plague before. So, yeah, congrats on, on uh, yeah, you're back in the game with the creativity. I'm an imaginative person. Right. And, and, you know, my, my plagues in my universe, potentially, uh, I mean, they probably do a lot of other terrible things, but they might make you taller as well. I've got an idea. Let's move on. David, what was in your first spot? So my first spot sort of kind of ties into what Noah was saying there. And that is that we're going to start seeing a lot more really good, really dialed kind of mid-range price point bikes. And a lot of what's going to drive that is that I kind of with Noah in that the geometry changes that we've been seeing are going to slow down and settle into like he said, something kind of on the aggressive end of where we're at right now. Up to this point, like we've been saying at a number of points here, the kind of high-end boutique brands and the small independent brands, which are often also high-end boutique ones, have been the ones driving those geometry changes. And so as the stuff that they've been pushing becomes more mainstream, you're going to see the bigger companies offering bikes with more similar geometry and doing them at a range of price points. And then at the same time, we've got 
kind of mid-range drivetrains like SRAM GX, the Shimano SLX and XT stuff that's really good now. And whereas 10 years ago, some of the more price point options kind of broke a lot and didn't work very well on both drivetrains and suspension and so on, we've now got to a point where you don't have to spend a billion dollars to get a really nice bike. And I think that the more mid-range offerings are going to just become a lot better in the next few years. Let's move on to the question of what gear category do you think has the most room for improvement in the coming decade? Now, this isn't this is different because our third question is going to be where will we actually see the most improvement 10 years from now? So that's not the question. Here, I'm sorry, Noah, this is a question of imagination. What gear category has the most room for improvement in the coming decade? So let's start with David. We'll go with your third your third spot here. I, to be clear, I don't actually think the odds of this one happening are great, but something that I would really love to see is some companies experimenting with doing dual crowns for kind of enduro-y sorts of bikes rather than having those be relegated just to being spec'd on DH bikes and super long travel stuff. And the reason that I'm excited about that idea in particular is that I think that, well, I kind of went through this myself on my Nikolai G16 Geometron bike. I started with a 36 on it and it got a 170 or 180 travel 36 single crown fork and especially for 29ers which my bike isn't but you get these really long single crown forks and then you're putting them on bikes with particularly slack head tube angles like that Nikolai they are getting a ton of fore aft loading and kind of flexing fore aft and with a telescoping fork that causes them to bind up pretty badly and the suspension action doesn't actually work very well and so while I had been happy with 36s on a whole bunch of prior bikes that weren't quite as radical on the geometry front, once I got to the 62 degree head angle on that G16, the four aft stiffness of the 36 was no longer really cutting it, specifically because of that suspension binding. And so I put a 40 on it, which, and I lowered it to 180, it's not at full travel, and from a suspension performance standpoint, it is way better, but it's also heavy and probably burlier than it really needs to be for that bike. And so I think it'd be really cool to see companies doing kind of a bit lighter duty dual crowns for enduro bikes. And like Specialized tried that, I don't know, something like 10 years ago on the enduro. And it was a good idea that they executed just about as badly as they possibly could have. And so it only lasted for a year or two because their implementation sucked. I think the idea was a good one, and I'd love to see someone else try it. Noah, third spot. I I just need to point out that David really should be putting a German Vector on the front of his bike instead of a a 40s overkill. (laughs) Um, All right. Linkage fork jokes aside, uh, the third thing I had on my list was frame durability, I think, could improve. You know, I really thought we were out of the woods on this one. I I still see frames cracking pretty often, both aluminum and carbon. And they're cracking in ways that don't make sense to me. Like, it's sort of just a random... There, there's random failures that uh, I've seen all all over, you know, in um, on the rear end, around pivots, on the front end, around head tubes. They don't seem to correspond with rider error. So something's amiss there. I think with some of the carbon, maybe it's due to the frames being laid up by hand and there's just inherently little uh little quirks to the process and you know you don't you don't know about that unless you do some sort of x-ray on the frame so yeah i I think there's room for improvement there and that improvement might come with increased weight which some companies are doing and 
Uh, I think people will wrap their heads around it <laughs> eventually um, because when your $7,000 bike cracks, uh, I bet you'll wish that it was a quarter pound heavier. <laughs> All right, David, what's your, what's in your number two spot? So in my number two spot, I have brakes as particularly as we're moving to 29ers becoming more and more common with a bigger wheel, you need more powerful brakes because you're basically spinning the rotor less fast through the caliper for any given forward speed of the bike and consequently are directly losing braking power. And so you do see companies starting to go up to 220 ish millimeter rotors in some cases to help mitigate that. But maybe more importantly than that, there are so many brakes out there that still just have kind of horrendous reliability issues. I'm a big fan of the way Shimano brakes work at first. And I don't know going to disagree with me on this particular point, <laughs> but I think the lever feel and power of them is really good. I like that they bite quite strongly off the bat, but then every single pair that I've had in the last decade or so, which is a, a fair number have after a season or two developed this horrendous wandering bite point issue where no matter how much you bleed them and how they just once in a while, you'll go to grab a handful of brake and whoever just goes to the bar. And I'm pretty sure that a lot of that is down to the master cylinder bore wearing and they're them just blowing fluid past the master cylinder. And Shimano has been great about warranting them. They've given me many pairs of free brakes over the years, but treating them as disposable and having to warranty them sucks. And they're not alone in having issues either. There've been any number of SRAM Avid brakes over the years that have had their particular foibles. And then on the flip side, you've got stuff like Hope, who I think make pretty solid brakes from a reliability standpoint, but even the V4, their big burly DHE brake is significantly down on power relative to the competition. And frankly, I haven't really found a currently offered brake on the market that I'm all that thrilled about. And I would like to see someone make something that I'm happy with. Granted, there are a few things I haven't tried. I haven't written the newest generation codes yet, which I know Noah likes. And the Hayes Dominion four piston looks potentially promising on paper, but I haven't written that yet either. But the fact that I've tried quite a few of the high-end offerings from people and am not very happy with most of them is ridiculous. Noah, do you want to disagree? Uh, no, no, I, I generally agree with that. Um, I, I, we, we have disagreements on which particular brakes we like best, but I think the general idea, the durability of the current brake offerings is not real impressive and you know the answer has got to be uh to add a bunch of electronic gizmos to the brakes uh i don't see how else we can possibly fix this problem it's the only complicated piece of the bike that doesn't have electronic crap jammed into it so you know maybe some little like mini brake boosting motors that that push the pistons in well, Formula Cars I know has power brakes. Yeah, oh, there you go. I know Formula makes some e-bike brakes that have a sensor built into them so that they'll cut motor power when you're braking. We can find a way to incorporate that into normal pedal bikes and make it super annoying too. I'm sure there's a good way to make a mess of that. Well, I think we're on to something. So <laughs> you heard it here first. All right. Um, where are we? Are we? Are you still supposed to give us your second? I, I still have to spot? give you my second one. Give us your second. And David doesn't said it yet, which is fantastic. That's amazing. Good for you, Noah. Uh, uh, I think drivetrains still have a lot of room for improvement. Hanging a derailleur off the side of the bike is still kind of crappy. Like the chain, drivetrains have gotten a lot better over the last ten years. Uh, you know, narrow wide chain rings have helped a lot. Clutch derailers have helped a lot. Uh, so, so they're better than they were, no question. But they're still kind of bad. Like I still rip a derailleur off my bike at least once a season. 
because some stupid stick or something pops up in there and I don't stop pedaling because I'm not really paying attention. And, you know, there goes my drivetrain and and a bunch of money. There's room for improvement there. I don't know if it's a gearbox or what. Um, And that's not even getting into like the suspension side of the drivetrain and, you know, high pivot bikes and idler pulleys and all that sort of junk. So there's potentially improvement there too. Uh, that, that you can just file that all under drivetrains could be better. So, yeah, I, I don't know what the answer is. Probably a bunch of electronic crap. I don't know about that, but I do like the idea. We saw the death of the front derailleur, and if we get rid of the rear one as well. Then we all just ride single speeds. It'll be great. David, top spot. So my top spot, I had tubeless tire construction casing rim interfaces something to (laughs) something to make tubeless tires is noah making fun of you before you even got your the whole thing out that you that is in your number one i think he's mad because it's his number one too yeah he he stole my thing again no we'll let you go we'll let you go first in this next this next we don't have any more uh, rankings (laughs) (laughs) that's true you're screwed you dummy. Anyway, keep going, smart guy. Yeah, so I don't know what this looks like in terms of actually improving it, but the fact that we have tires and then we're putting goopy latex sealant in it and then stuffing pool noodles in them and going through all this rigmarole to make them work and then having to carry plug kits and shove more stuff in the holes when they get holes poked in them because the sealant didn't actually work right and seal them is a pain in the ass and... I guess I lack the vision to imagine what the better solution is, but I desperately hope that the bike industry comes up with something good on that front because they're currently a pain in the ass and it seems like it should be, it should be better somehow. Anything to add to the um, very, very well said comment there? So probably not, huh, Noah? No. 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 <laughs> Fuck off, John. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on. Okay. That was the imaginative question about what gear has the most room for improvement. Now we're going to go to some brass tack stuff of where will we actually see the most improvement in gear at the end of 2029 when we're all riding our cool 2029 bikes and looking back at 2020 thinking, man, this was all primitive. What do you got? What will have been improved the most? Well, I I think it'll be the drivetrain. I think drivetrains will get better. I'm not entirely sure how they will get better. Um, I'm I'm fairly sure that there's going to be more electronic crap. And I'm also pretty sure that it'll shift really nicely until you forget to charge it. Uh, But then you'll probably have like a little solar panel in your in your down tube storage <laughs> thing because we're going to see improvements in your a solar panel in your weed pocket yeah you're gonna have like or, or like maybe like one of those little like hand crank generators so you can charge <laughs> your derailleur up again um oh no uh, it's I, a dyno hub to charge your derailleur have it built in. yeah that sounds draggy it does um, i mean all of this sounds dumb though so Maybe it'll be like one of those things like, you know, they used to have on the old Schwinn's where like you click the thing over and it rubs on your tire and, and it, you know, it's like the little dyno, but it's not on all the time. You have to, you know, knock it over. So it. Noah, this really sounds like you're still stuck on the last question. You have not like transitioned to the new question of what's actually going to have seen the most no, drive trains have lots of room for improvement which was the last question and i think we yeah. actually will see that improvement uh which is this question the real conundrum for you is going to be if drive trains are way better and they are better thanks to electronic doodads then you're gonna have to be like yep they're better and i was wrong to make fun of electronic doodad things no no, no i'll still make fun of them just because they make my life better doesn't mean that I will not be mildly annoyed at the fact that I have to plug my damn bike in. Otherwise, it won't shift. Is that all? Can we move on? Do you have anything else? Yeah, I want to get to. I want to hear what David has to say. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he's got something brilliant to say. Uh, I hope it involves electronic doodads. <laughs> David, what do you got? 
my answer actually, well, I have two things written down here. Um, on the gear side, I kind of talked about this already, but I think just mid-range bikes getting really good is going to be a big thing and shorter travel aggressive bikes along with it. All the stuff I said on that already. And I think that what I had written down here was that I think sort of a lot of the high end bike development at this point or going forward kind of feels like it's going to be gimmicky electronics and stuff like integrated one piece carbon bars and stems that are maybe a little lighter, but also are a pain in the ass because you can't adjust the angle of your bar and some of that kind of stuff. They're going to be trying to do things to, sell fancy high-end bikes that do less to make the bikes really genuinely better. And so it's going to be the mid-range stuff where we see strong improvement. But then the second thing I had written down here was not a gear thing exactly, but I think we're going to see some pretty big strides on access in the coming decades or coming decade. Mountain bike groups are doing a way better job of organizing themselves and advocating for mountain bikers and building mountain bike specific trails in a lot of areas. And so I think along with that, we're going to see more trails open to mountain bikes, more trails being built for mountain bikes and generally more places to ride our mountain bikes. And that's going to be sweet. That's a pretty optimistic take. Noah, do you share that optimism? Uh, yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, on, on the whole, uh, yeah, I think that's accurate. I also think, you know, th there will be struggles along the way. There's Oh, for sure. It's not going to be totally smooth just, sailing. You know, today we saw news that uh, a bunch of the Kingdom trails in Vermont closed. The bikes only. They're open to every other user group, but not bikes. And so I think, you know, there's this, the broader land managers really seem like they're still pushing hard for trails that are open to all user groups. But the fact of the matter is trails that are really awesome for bikes are less great for a lot of other user groups. Uh, oftentimes, you know, depends on the situation. You know, I think there's going to be a give and take there with that. And I think it'll work out really well in a lot of places. And I think it'll work out. Uh, it, it'll be difficult in, in a few places. Yeah, I agree with that. I'm not saying it's going to be just sunshine and daisies everywhere and all go super swimmingly. But I think broadly speaking, things will improve. Yeah. And if nothing else, I think uh, when we get all these awesome new bike trails, which we probably will get, I, I, I feel like we're moving away from just making, making like paved super highways that have some little rollers in it and calling it like something flowy and awesome. And we might actually get some like real trails that have bumps in them. We're, you know, we're riding these long travel bikes with awesome suspension on things that are smoother than the average parking lot. We might get towards trails with bumps in them again, which I think would be great. One can hope, yeah. Okay, before I move us kind of entirely away from the gear talk, I want to circle back just for a second to, do you think you'll be more willing to be like pining for stuff that we had in 2020 and think like that actually in some ways might be preferable to what we've got going on in 2029. Is that too strong of a statement? Actually, you think it's kind of likely it's at least way more likely than you would have said about anything, you know, gear related 10 years ago. What are your thoughts on that? I think that things will continue to improve over the next decade. The rate of improvement will be smaller. The difference between a 20, 30 bike and a 2020 bike versus a 2010 bike is going to be a smaller jump in the second decade. But no, I don't think we're going to be sitting in 2029 going, ah, shit, I wish I could have my 2020 bike back. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to be pining for the olden days 10 years from now, other than, you know, the difference between 10 years ago, me and the me right now is that I'm 10 years more jaded and just like annoyed at the industry. And there's no way that that's somehow going to reverse course in the next decade. <laughs> when I'm 10 years older, okay. I'm just going to be so pissed off at every stupid thing that the mountain bike industry has done, even though I'm sure it's all great and the bikes are going to ride great. And, you know, we're going to have so much electronic crap to charge every night. But uh, yeah, 
yeah, my level of jadedness is is not decreasing. Well, and again, I'm saying that just because, again, there was a little bit of an attitude about, ah, stuff's just going to get gimmicky, gimmicky. So I wanted you to go on record with like, yeah, 2029 will just be like, there was a great, you know, the, the high tower was really good. The SB 130 and 150 was really good. The patrol and sentinel these were they were just really good bikes and i guess it may be a different way to ask the question is do you guys want to sort of say or assume that we're in a kind of golden age right now right where everything's kind of been figured out so all we can do is go gimmicky from here i mean you know we did a related conversation on our gear 30 podcast when it when we're talking about ski gear and the like and one of the things that we were saying, and I think that this is a bit similar to the bike conversation about how geometry has matured, I do not expect a lot of innovation and things to look very different when it comes to ski shapes, right? I think this last 10 years was a lot of figuring out ski shapes. So I will be the first and most surprised if that's the advancement I guess what I'm just trying to get clear on is how much you think we are currently living in a golden age of bike stuff, or if you're like, nah, we expect more of just a, if not linear progression, an important and significant progression, a positive one. Right. No, I think there will absolutely be some very real progression that continues. Sort of similar to the ski shapes thing. I think geometry isn't going to be the big area there. I think we'll get continued refinement of a whole bunch of stuff will get better materials and construction and durability in a bunch of areas. I think that price points that you have to hit to get something that works pretty well will keep coming down as the better materials and construction trickle down. The stuff that I'm talking about being gimmicky, I think there's going to be some of that particular at the high end. But also I think that there has been a bunch of dumb gimmicky shit over the last decade too that didn't actually make anything better. Like, you know, the bike industry decided to basically kill off 20 millimeter axles and go to 15 millimeter axles in favor of on at least everything short of downhill bikes. And then they went, oh, well, actually those 15 by 100 axles aren't stiff enough. Maybe we should do boost and make them 10 millimeters wider. And boost rear ends too same thing like there have been a bunch of things that i don't you know the industry has accepted them and they are what they are now yeah i mean half the gimmicky standards were built around other gimmicky things like two niner plus tires <laughs> we can't fit a giant tire in this thing well we better make the whole freaking bike wider let's let's just scrap all the standards from the last two decades and make everything wider so we can fit these stupid tires in that now we don't even make anymore i mean the 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 mountain bike industry is in like a perpetual golden age like the present is always the golden age of mountain biking until you have five years of retrospective on it and then you look back and say wow what a bunch of crap we were riding five years ago this is the golden age today so you know it's just like a never-ending cycle it's 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 always the golden age and it's always terrible when whatever the last golden age was that's like a zen cohen there i'm not sure i followed it but um you know, just like we should ring a big gong and then just, you know, move on maybe. But um, all right, we're done with the gear talk. Question, broad prediction, will the number of mountain bikers around the world be going up or going down over the next decade? The number of mountain bikers will stop going up when people stop having babies or the zombie apocalypse happens. More people, more people means more bikers. Yeah, I mean, certainly Noah's right that just more people generally means more bikers, and I think that'll continue. This is probably pretty anecdotal, but just where I'm at around Seattle, it seems like there's quite a bit of momentum behind mountain biking, and there are obviously, you know, over the last decade, there are way more people in Seattle than there were at the start of it, but it also feels like the number of people in Probably the percentage of people around here who are interested in mountain bikes now has also increased. And I think that's going to continue. The good news, bike industry, according to Noah and David, we're going to have more mountain bikers in the next 10 years. So let's then talk about specific 
segments. So which types of riding are going to get bigger or smaller over this next decade? We'll break it down into specific categories. Let's start with cross-country. Uh, David, cross-country numbers going to go up or decline? Probably decline a little bit, especially if we're talking about actually racing cross-country. Ah, I, I just like the format of your question. <laughs> I, Shut up. Like you're, Just answer the first. No, I'm not going to answer your question. Uh, because I think you're trying to pigeonhole people into these little, like, are you a cross-country rider or are you an enduro rider? And it's like, well... You know, you're just some guy that rode a bike uphill and then coasted back downhill. Like, well, did you do it on a short travel bike? Oh, then you're cross-country. Did you do it on a longer travel bike? Oh, then you're on Duro. Were you in the middle? Oh, then you're trail. But it's kind of the same thing. And so, yeah, I I mean, it seems like a, a weird question. And there's only the most aggro people that ride bikes are militantly defining themselves as Xers or enduroers, and I don't think anybody defines themselves as a trail rider, at least not like that. So, yeah, I'm opposed to your question. <laughs> well, I sort of agree, which is why I chose to answer it in the form of XC racing specifically. Yeah, if we're going to talk about racing, then that's a different question. Like, which t- which... Uh, category of racing will get bigger or smaller. But if you're just talking about like their general riding population, because the, the, the racing population is a lot smaller than the general riding population. Right, right. I'm not sure though that everybody out there that they don't actually self-identify a bit more strictly with like, yeah, I, I like cross-country screw enduro or vice versa. Strikes me that people still feel pretty strongly about those categories, even if they want to maybe make fun of them on bike forums or something secretly. They're like, yeah, bro, I'm this or very much not that. Well, then this is my prediction for the next decade is that we're entering a new era of uh, uh, riding label fluidity. Riding label fluidity. Except for e-bikes. You have a note on here about e-bikes. Those are different. (laughs) Right. So let's keep it moving. While we might be moving into Noah's golden age of peace, love, and riding label fluidity, um, let's just keep going with the order of things here. So what does that mean about that thing we will, I guess, formerly call enduro, but now still kind of call enduro? David, is that going to be a bigger or smaller segment in 10 years? Choosing to answer this is looking at like everything that kind of incorporating just sort of general trail riding, not firmly in one specific camp. I think that's going to grow a lot. Sort of people just riding mid-travel bikes and riding them all over the place and generally doing kind of middle-of-the-road mountain biking. That's where the growth is going to be. Noah? Is that consistent with your hopes and dreams of a more riding label fluid society? Well, yeah. I mean, the marketing departments are definitely telling you that enduro is cool. So if you're going to be fluid, you're probably going to trend towards the cool side of things. Uh, But I still maintain that it's the same friggin' thing. And what people are calling enduro was, you know, you're still just paddling up a hill and coasting down it. DH going to get bigger or smaller in the next 10? I think the racing scene is going to contract a little bit. There will be at least a similar number, maybe more people riding bike parks a bit, but they're going to be doing it increasingly often on trail-y, enduro-y kind of bikes rather than owning a dedicated DH bike. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. I think I think the DH bike market dwindles uh it's it'll be a small segment but people will continue to take chairlifts to the top of things so they can coast downhill they're just going to do it on their uh you know on their enduro bike obviously gravel riding bigger or smaller in 10 years smaller i think this one's maybe a little bit of a fad and i don't know if it's quite peaked yet but it feels like something that's being pushed really hard by marketing departments, but not actually that many people are that excited about. And I think 
yeah, maybe it's yet to crest, but it will dwindle. Let's hang on that last sentence for a second. Maybe hasn't crested yet, but you think by the end of 2029, the prediction is that it will have and we'll start to see the decline. Yep. Okay. Noah. Yeah, I'm going to disagree, which is exciting because I don't get to disagree with David all that often. Uh, I think it's going to, I mean, at some point it's going to plateau, but I, I think it's got a ways to go. I think, uh, like we talked about, there, uh, we're trending towards more people on this planet, and a lot of those people like to drive cars, and a lot of those people are really bad at it. And so riding road bikes is terrifying, and I think a lot of people are realizing that, and so they can get on these gravel bikes and go do their road bike thing, but in a place where they're significantly less likely to get hit by a car. And then there's also the Midwest, <laughs> where, you know, that's a good place to go gravel, gravel grinding. Uh, so yeah, I, I think I don't see the mountain biking population defecting to gravel roads, but I do see the road biking population, uh, switching over to some place where they're not going to get run over by some dude rolling coal in a dually. I actually like that one. Noah, I think, I think you, I think you get the win on this one. Finally. I mean, we've only been talking for a solid hour so it's good to see you pull a W uh, here for, for a brief moment in time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You can just call me LSU on this particular question. All right. We've talked a bit about it. E-bikes. We'll get the quick synopsis, I guess. Bigger category, smaller category, 10 years from now. Like we said before, I think a bit bigger, but not utter global domination. Noah? Yeah, we're back to uninteresting, I'm agreeing with David kind of answers. Okay. It was a fleeting moment. Anything else? I just kind of had other. What category have I neglected to talk about? Anything else here? Uh, yeah. The one thing I wanted to add here was that this is, again, anecdotal, much like my comment about number of people riding in Seattle. But I have been seeing in the last just handful of years, way more women out on trails and a way higher percentage of the people out mountain biking being women. And I think that's going to continue. And that's awesome. Noah, do you have anything nearly that insightful and optimistic? Probably not. Uh, no, I think we're good. Okay, so next question. Will we see more operating bike parks or fewer bike parks at the end of 2029? I think we're going to see more as more and more ski resorts try to increase their offerings for summer activities. But the thing I want to say to those ski resorts who are thinking about trying to make a bike park is that if you're going to do it, you need to commit and actually do it. There have been a number around here who have ostensibly started a bike park, but then have done it by building like two or three trails and haven't had a broad enough array of offerings for it to be a very good prospect. And that kind of half-assed doing it isn't, you know, I you'll go ride there for a day or two, maybe, but you need some breadth of trails for it to really be a viable enterprise. And so if you are going to go for it, you need to really do it properly. Kind of related thought. We, again, thinking about the ski industry, there is become a bit more of a trend. I would not call this a massive trend, but there is definitely a bit more of a thing where people are skinning uphill at ski areas, right? Um, say before work or before the chairs start spinning, do you think that we are going to see like a big increase of people maybe pedaling e-bikes up bike parks before or after close that that's going to be maybe a lot more of a thing than it is currently? Nah, I think it's sort of a different scenario in that bike park trails don't offer the same value add in the way that being inbounds in the ski resort does in that you don't have avalanche control as a safety concern to think about and you don't have groomed trails in quite the same way to make skinning easier and you're not having to break trail and so on. And so I think the value add of pedaling up a bike park versus riding any other normal trails wherever isn't quite the same in the way that skidding up in a resort might be for some people. So I don't think that trend quite tracks. Noah, agree, disagree? So 
we've got we've got two things here. The so as to the first question, I'm not sure I see there being all that many new bike parks in ten years. Maybe a couple here and there, but mostly I think we'll see the expansion of existing bike parks. There's not very many bike parks in North America that are profitable. So I think there's I think the ones that are profitable will certainly continue to operate and they'll expand. You know, that's North Star, Whistler, some of the bigger bike parks. Uh, I think some of the other bike parks that are maybe close to being profitable will bridge that gap and, and make it into the black. I think some of them will probably go out of business because, yeah, they're kind of limping it along and half-assing it, like David said, and they have three trails, and that's not enough to actually attract enough paying customers to make that a viable venture, uh, despite the fact that there's more and more mountain bikers out there. As to the second question, like the whole uphill thing, um, that's funny because the, the local uh, bike park has allowed uphill access for years and now they're trying to shut it down. Um, and that's creating a big fuss in town. I, I agree with David's general uh, premise of his answer that it doesn't make sense to me that you would go ride up a bike park when there's all these other great trails that aren't just thrashed to shit from downhill bikes. But yet, uh, at least locally, a lot of people ride up in the bike park uh, and they're angry that they might lose that access. So, so maybe the short answer is no, I don't think that'll be a big thing for all the reasons that David said. But maybe I'm missing something there because apparently <laughs> there, there's plenty of people that seem to be excited about it. Next question, um, you've talked about whether or not we'll see more bike parks. I guess there's a related question of will we see more people riding in bike parks 10 years from now? I guess I think that we'll see a modest increase kind of tracking along with mountain biking as a sport in general growing a bit. But I think the sort of percentage of hours spent mountain biking that are in a bike park versus outside of a bike park is going to stay flat or maybe trail off just a little bit but net more people riding in bike parks just because there are significantly more people riding, period. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a, a fair answer. Although, um, I mean, maybe this is getting back to the previous question a little bit. I, I do think that we might see more like paid trail centers uh, that aren't based around a chairlift. It's just a trail network that gets regular maintenance, you know, some good trails. But, you know, a, a problem that I see at some places is that we have more and more users using these trail networks. It's difficult to, to monetize those users and those trails don't get built for free and they don't get maintained for free. There are some places that do that. You know, you need a whatever, a $5 pass to go ride at the trails. And I, I think we might see more of that just as... Uh, there, there are more users. There's, there's more mountain bikers out there. The trails need more maintenance, uh, but there's kind of a limited pot of money to pay for that. There's only so many grants out there and so much public funds. And so I think we'll see uh, some of these trail centers finding ways to get the users to pay for the resource that's there even if there isn't a chairlift and that kind of infrastructure. So to be clear, that is a prediction of yours, that we will see a bit or a pretty big rise in chairlift-less trail centers, as you're calling them. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure it's necessarily an increase in the number of these trail centers. I think it's more of a change in how they're funded. The more money that's available at these trail, trail centers probably means that they have more and better trails. So maybe it's an expansion. I guess I'm wondering how, how you're thinking this is actually set up or administrated. Like you're talking about like the three of us could go open a trail center if we bought, I guess, the right land and we were going to 
people will pay, we will take care of and maintain the trails. I mean, like, because that's it. I'm just wondering if you're talking about a different administrative model, because currently, right, we have, you know, mountain bike associations and clubs, and they accept donations. And those are the entities that are doing trail maintenance, right? A lot of those organizations are funding their work through donations and grants and that type of thing. They're not they're not directly charging the users of the trails for the use of those trails. And what I'm saying, I, you know, I don't know how widespread it'll be, but I think at least some of those places that are having trouble paying for the construction of the trails they want to build or the maintenance of the trails they already have, I, I think they might start looking at uh, a, a more direct charging kind of model. And, and this already exists. You know, there's places that do this. I just think it'll be a bit more widespread. Last question. Wildest predictions. So... This is where you get to let your freak flag fly, I guess. Um, so this is stuff where we're not saying it's likely to happen. We're just saying we'd love to see it happen. Noah, we'll let you go first just in, so David can't steal your thunder potentially on this. I think the chances of this happening are pretty slim. But, you know, it seems maybe there's, there's a glimmer of hope that USA Cycling will find a way to stop sucking the joy out of racing. And people, there was like the heyday of racing back in like the late 90s. Uh, there's races going on all over the place. There's actually money to be made in North America racing mountain bikes. And that has gone away. And uh, there's a lot of different people and entities and, and reasons that you can kind of point the finger at. But uh, I am in the point the finger at USA Cycling camp. So, yeah, I, I think there are more people. There's more people riding bikes. At least some significant percentage of those people are competitive assholes. And having a good venue for them to vent their frustration via racing bikes would be great. You know, there's a lot of um, kind of grassroots races that that are not necessarily licensed through USA Cycling that they're great. Like there's these little race series uh, and a bunch of them are super fun, but we don't really have the good coherent national series that used to exist. David, last word. I put down two things here. My first one is that Sam Hill retires from racing enduro to return to racing DH. And then alongside <laughs> that, uh, Nino Scherter decides to enter a DH race too, World Cup downhill race. He was playing around on a DH bike recently and posted some video on the internet somewhere. And so I've decided that that means he's definitely going to race a World Cup downhill. Uh, and then the second thing I had was that we're going to see a hardtail resurgence. People are going to realize how much fun hardtails with modern aggressive geometry are and they're not going to take over the world or anything, but we're going to see way more people riding modern, sweet, awesome hardtails in 10 years from now. Okay. Hardtail resurgence. I, I will admit that I spent like three hours the other night searching around the internet for a hardtail that I actually wanted. I didn't find one, but I looked. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go, David. You got Noah for the next 10 years looking for that proper hardtail. So signs, uh, inklings that, that you might be onto something there. Glad to hear it. Well, gentlemen, thanks for sharing the insights and, you know, and the occasional crazy thing that you said, and hopefully a few inspired things. But uh, I'd say all in all, you know, you, you're leaving us with reasons for optimism about the state of global mountain biking. And uh, I hope that, uh, we get to see more of those optimistic sounding predictions come true and that all the goofy and dumb stuff and things about the plague that makes us all wildly tall, hopefully that stuff doesn't come to fruition. So I think that's a sound note upon which to leave our prediction business game. And we'll just now check in in 10 years and see how, you know, see how you did. Sounds good. We'll uh, see just how wrong we were about everything in a bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, 
Noah, you're welcome. You know, and Noah, you can take solace in the fact that um, I'm not going to wait 10 years to tell you how wrong you are about things. So, you know, don't worry. The feedback will be imminent. All right. You're going to tell me in the next golden age of cycling. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. Yeah. Yep. Probably maybe even before that. So perfect. Well, guys, thank you. And uh, well, I'm sure I'll be talking to both of you again real soon. So I look forward to the next time. Looking forward to it too. Yeah, sure. No, it was mostly quiet. All right, guys, later. (laughs) Bye. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And if you enjoyed this conversation, we'd love it if you would subscribe to Bikes and Big Ideas, share this episode with your friends, and take just 30 seconds to leave us a nice rating or review in iTunes, because that really helps the cause. I also want to say thanks to Noah and David for the conversation. Thanks to Jared Farley and Luke Alley for producing this episode. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Until next time, please take good care out there. And we will talk to you again next week.